Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, the podcast on how technologies are healing healthcare around the globe. My guest today is a very special healthcare innovator entrepreneur known as the world's first VR surgeon. But before we continue, a quick invitation for all digital health startups. Future for Health, the global think tank connecting the established medtech industry to young innovators, is again organizing the Medica app competition. The finalists will present their solution and compete for rewards at the Medica World Forum for Medicine, the leading international trade fair for the medical sector taking place in Dusseldorf in Germany between 12th and 15th November. It's a great opportunity to raise the visibility of your solution. So go to www.ftr4h.org slash weblog or Google Medica App Competition for all the details. Now back to the show. In 2014, 13,000 surgical students and healthcare professionals and members of the public from more than 100 countries watched online how Shafi Ahmed removed a tumor from the liver and bowel of a patient. This was the first operation streamed live online using Google Glass. Two years later, Shafi Ahmed performed an operation on a British cancer patient using virtual reality technology, again with a large global online audience. He is undoubtedly a driver of change in healthcare, and his next big project is leading the first ever fully digital hospital in Bolivia. Yes, you heard right, Bolivia. Let's put the matters in a perspective. Bolivia is a South American country with 12 million people, attributing only 6.3% of the GDP to healthcare. The population life expectancy is low, with tobacco use and high blood pressure higher compared to WHO region. Can a country like this become the global digital health leader? This is what Shafi Ahmed has to say. Shafi, you're a surgeon. Have you ever undergone a surgery yourself? Uh, good, I have, yes. Uh, I, what have I undergone? When I was at medical school, um, in my, what was it, in my third year or fourth year at medical school, I uh, I was playing um, football, and I fell awkwardly, and I broke my left arm, my left radius and ulna. It was a mid-shaft fracture, um, so I was taken to hospital immediately, and I had emergency, um, what's called um, closed reduction, no, it's open reduction, and fix, internal fixation. So they had, um, I've got two metal plates in both my forearm bones, with about 16 screws. So that was my only operation I've had in my lifetime. 
Okay, and that's quite a long time ago. How do you think the procedure would look like today? Because uh, you've been in the medical practice, you know how the procedure is supposed to look like. Do you think you would want to advise the surgeon? Would you choose the surgeon yourself? What do you think? It's a really good question. I think that obviously you have more insight about um, the operations, what's performed, You understand the process of having surgery. You know, there's a whole process of getting ready, having the, uh, the anesthetist and the anesthetic. I, I guess it's, you also know about the complications. So you know much mm -hmm. more about what can go wrong. Um, and so, and obviously most surgeons will know of me or I'll know of them. We'll have a, a small world, we'll know one another. Um, and the question really is whether I can resist and let them take over entirely, which is probably the safest thing to do. Or would I get involved in my own care by giving advice or having, I think you certainly have more information at hand. You'd make better decisions for yourself because you know what the outcome is going to be. So I'd hope that there'd be a better informed choice for me and the surgeon who's going to operate me in the future. You're one of the pioneers when it comes to practical implementation and introduction of new technologies into healthcare. In 2014, you used Google Glass uh, during the surgery and that was streamed live all over the world. And even later on, you streamed live um, a surgery on Snapchat, right? Yeah, so that was in 2014 where we did the the Google Glass server using Google Glasses. It was really 2016 at the end where we did the similar sort of thing, live stream on the Snapchat spectacles. And in between that, we did the uh, virtual reality operations. We did three things using three platforms to try and train, educate people um, uh, for surgery around the world. So I can imagine that the patients that were involved in these procedures were uh, excited or somehow convinced that uh, this is okay. But what about the management? Um, healthcare is risk averse. So how did you approach um, the manager of the hospital to approve of the procedure since it was something completely new at that time? It's important to make sure that all the stakeholders uh, um, are involved in the project. So for each of the ones, I obviously spoke to the chief executive of the hospital, the CEO, also the medical director, uh, and also all the people that were going to be responsible for that live transmission and its after effects, for example, information governance, the legal team, etc. What was, what was good with the hospital is that when I came up with the ideas of implementing innovation, they weren't saying to me, hold on, let's think about this, let's get a working group together, let's get a meeting together. Because what that happens with that, it stifles the innovation because you don't really progress quickly enough to utilize new technologies. And the good thing about my trust was that they said, look, that's fine, let's make it work, it's a good idea. Who do we need to make this work? And what are the risks involved? And if there are risks, how do we mitigate them as far as possible so that we can still drive the innovation, implement quickly, but also be sensible in the approach uh, with regards to safety, uh, the governance and the ethics behind what we're trying to do, and also, of course, the confidentiality. So all of those things were done together as we were doing the project rather than sitting back waiting 
for other people to give you answers. So that was the, the um, helpful. And I think one of the things I've noticed is obviously is that you're right. People have a lot of good ideas. Um, and we all have good ideas. But the harder thing in clinical work is translate that into clinical practice and implement it despite the restrictions um, and the bureaucracy that might stop you from innovating. So in this case, how long did it take from the initial idea to actual implementation? Because you did mention quite a few stakeholders. The legal department had to be notified, the management. So the Google Glass project is quite rapid. That only took us less than a week. And each time we've done that, it all depends on the time frame of what we're trying to do with the live stream of the operation. But it never took more than a few weeks because our chief executive and the medical hierarchy were very supportive. And they would push the right people to make quick decisions and choices so that we could work together cohesively to make things work uh, in a rapid fashion, but again, safely. By the way, uh, what's happening with Google Glass now? Is it still in use? Because at least from the outside, it seems like it went out of fashion pretty quickly, despite a lot of uh, potentials and positive expectations of the technology. It hasn't completely um, been abandoned. Um, what At the moment, the Glass team, what they've done is they you can, you can get the Glass tomorrow for industry to work in a workplace, to create something that in, in, a, in a work environment, for example. But you can't individually go and buy a glass just because you want to use one. So the end user has been taken out of the equation. Now it's a bit more about industry and company and businesses that might use a glass going forward. For example, one of my friends uh, who's worked out in America, uh, they run a company called BrainPower, uh, and they're looking at autism in children. So they're using Google Glass to help Uh, children with autism, for example. I've got another company that I've been working with in France, um, uh, and they've been developing Google Glass and other wearable technology and using it for healthcare uh, and also for industry. So it is being used, and you can get it if you want to use it in a way that's um, creating some good work, if you like. Google Glass itself it is a fantastic device. It still is a fantastic device today. I think it was well ahead of its time when it came out, back in 2013 or so. And I think the problems they had with Google Glass was that when they decided to use it um, as an experiment, they employed what's called uh, explorers. They asked people in North America primarily to um, um, become the explorers to showcase what they could do with the glass. And what happened was people were very negative about the glass and they posted bad things with the glass with you know confidentiality problems, Uh, people were getting um, comments upon about using them regularly um, and also about the limitations of the glass itself. So a lot of issues around personal um, uh, kind of ethics around the glass. Um, but it was just beyond, it's just before its time. People weren't ready to have people with um, wearable technology on their heads that could be accessing mobile phone calls, taking pictures and videos, for example. We just weren't ready as a society. And I said to the Glass team when I met them in Mountain View about a year later, they should have employed people around the world to be explorers, not just North America. That way they could showcase really good examples of working 
people doing great stuff with the glass, like education, like healthcare, for example, from many sources around the world, which may have overcome the negative publicity they got from uh, a few people. But after 2014, the Google Glass didn't become a sort of a standard for medical education or the clinical practice, because that's one of the issues innovators are facing. They have a good idea, it's provably usable, but then it just doesn't get adopted. Yeah, there's one problem with uh, innovation. You have a good idea, of course, and uh, most ideas are very good. But then it's the way you monetize it, uh, that it becomes absorbed in the healthcare system, that you get remuneration, that it becomes more viable as a product, whether it's a medical device or something else. And that's the harder part. Uh, it's about the payer, who's going to pay for this, etc. And ultimately, if you look at, say, Google Last Education, the idea was to uh, stream operations and, of course, use it for educational purposes. And the end user being the student or the trainee, could then access that uh, easily through a website and pay for the privilege of doing so. So there's certainly a way of monetizing these kind of uh, platforms. But as you say correctly, any new idea is is difficult because uh, if you want investment going forward, then you have to show the fact that there's a um, there's remuneration or at least the potential to monetize that product ultimately, which is why the investors want their money back or uh, an exit. Uh, obviously, everyone wants their 10x, of course, when investing in companies, which may, may not always be possible. Do you think augmented reality solutions have more chances of succeeding today uh, in a similar manner that Google Glass failed to? Yeah, I think so. I, I think now we're, um, as a society, we're kind of becoming more accepting of wearable technology going forward. And you can see where we had come from, 2013 or so, Glass was introduced, then you had uh, things like VR coming in, then Snapchat Spectacles and the Magic Leap and many other head devices now that are becoming more and more common. So we are getting a stage where there's a more acceptance of these new technologies, um, and that's great. And the problem now, of course, uh, Tasha, is that we need to create the content. For many, many years, the industry has been driven hard by uh, the hardware. Uh, so it's become more affordable and it's more accessible. But still, what remains is what I think is the compelling content. It's the content, isn't it? It's the way we get people to try it out, to use it, to buy into the whole um, journey of AR and VR. What I find interesting in your case is the fact that you're working inside the NHS. Now, NHS is a public system, which means that financial constraints when it comes to investments may be more rigorous than, for example, in the private systems. So from that perspective, I'm wondering uh, how the NHS manages to include all sorts of innovations in the system. Uh, there's because at least based on the collaborations, it seems that it's very forward thinking. It's working closely with Babylon, the artificial intelligence app used for triage and as a first point of contact before um, reaching a physical doctor. Then there's the collaboration with Google's DeepMind in ophthalmology. And then there's your case. So how do you see um 
similar collaborations could be encouraged in other countries? Or uh, is this possible perhaps because the industry itself is fueling in the funds to test their solutions and hope for the best that um, the solutions will be able to spread after they're uh, proven uh, to be useful? The NHS is a stage where it's interesting because every healthcare system has innovators and early adopters. It's just a natural, um, I guess, distribution of um, medical personnel within the healthcare system. Um, so, um, and it's always had pockets of innovation. Don't get me wrong. It's always had people driving change in small pockets, small areas. It's never been uniformly across the entire country. More recently, I think the NHS is in a better state because it's tried to establish a better system and pathway for innovation to be implemented. I'll tell you why. First of all, we've got a new healthcare uh, health secretary, and he's already said he wants technology to drive the healthcare system in this country. So now we've got a new healthcare leader who understands technology. He's a patient of Babylon on the app, actually. And he understands that this kind of AI um, interface might be the future for healthcare. So that's the first thing. Also, below that, we've got other organizations that really trying to support change. We have NHS Digital. So NHS has a digital component across the entire country, thinking how to put Wi-Fi into every hospital. How do we maximize the use of CRS? How do we improve um, digital um, transformation in the NHS. So that's NHS as a whole. You then got the academic health science centres um, and many hospitals that are kind of um, kind of be experts in implementing technology already um, assigned roles for that. You've also got Tony Young's Young Clinical Entrepreneurship Program for people who want to become entrepreneurs. The NHS can do so now with their job at the same time but have the access to mentorship, to, to companies to help support them, and perhaps even funding. So what we're seeing over many issues is creating an infrastructure where innovation is now thought to be good. We want to um, spend more money on people innovating uh, and also support them through that whole journey. Even at medical school, my own course that I run called Bart's X um, now teaches the medical students uh, at Bart's Medical School, the issues around entrepreneurship, innovation. We teach them about future technologies. We ask them to think of ideas and go to a hackathon in Dragon's Den, for example, really changing the way that future doctors are going to be trained because ultimately what we need is doctors of tomorrow to have all the faculties that will allow them to practice medicine next 20, 30 years with technology being the most important part, we also want them to be innovators, not to be scared about suggesting ideas and failure and challenging the dogma tradition of traditional healthcare. So all in all, the whole ecosystems I've described is now moving to where we should be. And that'll get better and better as time goes on. Of course, there's bureaucracy. But the other thing that we have done, of course, is introduce tariffs. Uh, the payer, the NHS, will now pay for apps to be given to patients or technology to be driven so that they'll get paid for uh, and be remunerated. So once that's also in place, 
people now can design apps or other technology interfaces that will allow them to be reimbursed by the NHS. So all in all, I'm just seeing a positive direction for our health service. A few years ago, it has been said that it takes around 17 years from an innovation to be invented and uh, becoming a standard in the medical practice. Now, if we leave out the drug development and the fact that clinical trials do take long and stages need to be implemented uh, before the actual use, do you see that digital health solutions could be implemented faster? How is the time frame for these innovations changing? Okay, so let's go back. You mentioned years ago. So technology wasn't really available that long ago in terms of where we are now. Remember, technology was much slower um, in kind of linear phase, if you like, of technological growth back 50, 60, 70 years ago. So it doesn't take time for technology to develop and for that to be implemented. We're now in a position where there's so many technologies coming together. And I always say this is really the most um, exciting time to be alive in medicine. We've got so many technologies, so far so rapid, we're going through exponential change. And that's different to what it was like 30, 40, 50 years ago, or even 10 years ago, for example. So we are seeing the rapid introduction of technologies, the rapid change and advancement, and also implementation. So we are seeing much more rapid progress. A clear example of that is, you mentioned earlier, Babylon. Babylon are constantly developing their software as an AI chatbot initially to be able to triage patients in the NHS. They already had pilots implementing it across the NHS as we speak. Already they have taken over 100,000 patients onto their onto their um, platform, who now the primary uh, care GP is GP at hand, which is Babylon. So actually, you can say that it's taken a while, but that implementation has been almost as rapid as the technology has been produced. So it can't be any faster than that. This is where I agree with Ali Parser in some ways, who is the um, CEO of Babylon. Traditional methods of uh, innovation are that you innovate, you have an idea, you then validate that idea, which takes time with clinical trials, etc. Then you implement. That cycle was too long before. By the time you validated and implemented, that innovation has become obsolete. What now needs to happen is innovation has to happen in conjunction with validation. You've got to do the two together almost and mitigate risk as you do this and then implement at the same time. And that's where we're heading towards. So traditional methods, I think, of um, introducing new ideas into healthcare system has to change because otherwise we won't be developing quickly enough. I'm not sure you saw the movie The Bleeding Edge. It's a documentary filmed by Netflix and it uh, shines a light on how the industry of medical devices works. It's portrayed as being very similar to the pharma industry in terms of the doctors using new innovations too quickly. And specifically in surgery, there's an example of a robot that doctors said in the movie themselves that it took them uh, maybe 
hundreds of operations before they actually got comfortable with the use. And by the time that um, they got comfortable with using these devices, a lot of patients also got harmed. So what's your take on that? Did you see the movie? I haven't seen the movie, but I'm well aware of the issues you describe. And and I think you're right. Uh, for patients, and in particular my area of surgery, we have seen disasters, of course, with people trying to innovate and implement. For example, the case around meshes used for vaginal prolapse being recently highlighted. And, you know, this was implemented without proper clinical trials or proper studies, and it became part of the normal practice of surgeons who are practicing in that area. And this led to a lot of morbidity uh, for many women across the world, of course, which is obviously completely and wholly unsatisfactory. So those that should never happen. So there's a balance there between pushing as hard as you can for change, to do things differently and better, improve outcomes, but at the same time having enough governance in place and also enough safety measures so that we do the right thing. And that's kind of balance we will have to kind of understand when we're implementing change uh, and transformation into healthcare practice. If we go back to Babylon for just a second, a lot of criticism uh, has been mentioned by doctors that the app uh, only helps the very healthy patients, which harms the public system because then only the more difficult and uh, sicker patients come in and they're more expensive to treat, which is turning the system into uh, an unsustainable state from a financial point of view. Have you heard about these critiques? Yeah, so I think the criticisms around that, I think, are, are fair. It's about what's called cherry-picking. You pick the young, fit patients who are digital natives, who understand the internet, who have got smartphone apps, who don't need to be seen regularly because they're generally quite fit and healthy, They'll access healthcare on demand, <clears throat> and not um, for chronic diseases that other patients might have, for example. So this was a criticism levied, I think, for a lot of companies, including Babylon. And I, and I guess you're right. What happens, that polarizes opinion because the primary care physicians who look after chronic diseases have a bigger burden or problem to deal with. Patients become more regular, requiring more access to healthcare system, requiring more medication, uh, more appointments, more referrals, etc. So it does create that inequality there. Uh, but if you, I went to the um, Babylon's uh, recent launch last week, where they're now putting a further hundred million dollars into the Babylon system, and with a an idea of hitting the moonshot of chronic diseases, managing it using uh, some sort of platform or developing a platform to manage chronic diseases. So that's interesting. If they managed, if they and other companies managed to manage chronic disease, and that's their interest and their future, then that conversation becomes a different one. The arguments become um, more, uh, I, I think, uh, less uh, authoritative. And it may be that if they crack the chronic disease in the future, that, that then we can have a better healthcare system. And I think all of us need to realize that we need to really change the way we think because at the moment no one in the world can afford healthcare. Whether it's the US healthcare system, which you know you pay 19-20% of GDP, yet a cardiac bypass operation costs over 200,000 pounds, 
Yeah, in India, Shetty、uh, from Bangalore can do a cardiac bypass for twelve hundred dollars. And there's another argument against what I said previously about cherry picking. In theory, if the healthy patients that don't require a doctor's visit don't come to the healthcare system, that could mean. That、uh, the waiting lines could be shorter in the system, and that doctors wouldn't deal with the the patients that don't require their help, and could have more time for the sick patients. Yeah, no, and that's a that's another、um, good argument,、um, and and I think you're right. If you if you think about what a doctor is trained for. Um, let's let's go back to basics. Our junior doctors, for example, spend a lot of their time on computer records, the CRS system, computer record system, or electronic health record. They're a lot of time doing paperwork or pushing pens and things. And ultimately, what is a doctor trained for? Is a trained to be able to manage patients that may, the difficult ones may be, making decisions for them. The common things that occur commonly. Do you really need a doctor to do that ultimately? If you've got a cough or a cold, or you've got something minor to be seen, what's the level of competence required to manage that particular patient? Yeah, could it be done by an AI chatbot to reduce the burden of healthcare for everybody else? And this is where I think it does have value because you'll be taking away a lot of the unnecessary burden on the NHS, and the doctors then can focus what they've been trained for specifically, and their job becomes much more valuable rather than just being a paper pushing exercise. I want to move from England to the other side of the ocean and to a country that you are closely connected to, and are about to be even closer.、Um, that's Bolivia, and you're building a very special project there. It's a digital only, or let's say, latest technologies、uh, enhanced hospital. Could you tell us more about that? I've been fortunate enough to be in a position where、um, I've become part of this new、um, project in Bolivia, in a city called Santa Cruz de la Sierra, which is the second biggest city in Bolivia after La Paz.、Uh, it has the biggest population, of course, of Bolivia. And with my uh, colleague uh, Martin Dockweiler and his team. We're now building a hospital. It's a 250-bedded hospital with about 25 intensive care beds, and it will be a general、uh, hospital covering emergencies and elective admissions. So the hospital will be hopefully finished by the next couple of months in terms of the infrastructure and the building itself. We'll then spend time putting in place new technologies as a test bed for innovation. You know, we all talk about this new healthcare system. I've been to many, many conferences, as you have, Tasha, with people talk about the future of healthcare. We want to do this with wearable technology, with AI, with blockchain, with whatever. And people talk about it endlessly. What we've got an opportunity here is we've got a blank canvas, a blank canvas, so that we can now put in place the right technologies to see if they work. So it's a wonderful opportunity. We can put in. AI chatbots. We can put in telemedicine. We can put in things like AR and VR in operating theatres. We can use three D printed models to allow people to use um, uh, uh, 
for example, in orthopedics where they broke limbs, for example, we could create 3D parts to correct that, for example. We could have a big data set so everyone's data is captured and we then can use that data to drive change. It's quite a challenge to introduce new processes in already existing uh, hospitals and here you're gonna have all the latest technology so can you tell me a bit more how the training of the staff is going to look like yeah it's a new hospital so we'll get new staff in we'll train them that's part of our mission to ensure that we develop their thought processes and we want them to innovate as well with us together uh, innovation will be the key at the same time it has to be a hospital that's safe that performs well And obviously, you've got to make sure the outcomes are really good for patients. That becomes the most important part of any hospital. And I guess it is a private hospital in terms of its uh, funding. But at the same time, we've, we've been very closely aligned with the government of Bolivia. And they've um, hopefully will support us and send patients from the public health system also into the hospital. And I like to think that it might become a private-public partnership. Um, and that would be a real nice model uh, for the future. I did a little bit of research on Bolivia and I'm curious about what kind of patients will you accept to the hospital? Now, uh, Bolivia is a very small country. It has 12 million people. Um, only 6.3% of the GDP is attributed to healthcare, which is a third compared to the US and below average uh, in the European countries where the percentage is around uh, 10%. Then the other issue is that when you try to find information about the Bolivian healthcare system, it's really hard to read anything positive. There's problems with sanitation and it's advised to visit private facilities if you're a tourist. So are you expecting uh, rich patients from the neighbor countries? No, initially, obviously, we'll be targeting the Bolivian uh, patients themselves. And, you know, although it's 12 million, remember, there's not enough healthcare facilities to look after the entire population. And the public hospitals, as you suggested, already overrun by demand and not enough capacities available. So there's huge waiting lists um, and actually the the care is probably less than perfect. So we aim to be a part of that solution for them initially. And we'll expand our hospitals across Bolivia. It won't just be one, there'll be more coming, I'm sure, to ensure they connect together. They will create a healthcare service uh, for the future. So we'll be hoping that both the Bolivian Patients, both in public and private sector, will come to us because we were trying to make healthcare more affordable. And obviously, what we're trying to do is make it more cheaper and more affordable. That's the idea with this new healthcare system. But our, our aim, of course, also then is to expand across South America, maybe Peru and Brazil and other places within a short time frame. And that's the kind of thing we'll be working on. And, you know, if your hospital does well and it's digital and it's modern and it has good outcomes, of course, it may attract people from. Um, uh, other countries and uh, Brazil's next door with a huge population and again uh, not enough capacity for healthcare so we hope that we'll be not just um, for Bolivian people for anyone else that comes see us but also we want people to learn from what we're doing uh, learn perhaps from our mistakes and perhaps from our successes so that we can all benefit the healthcare system in South America. 
The project is definitely ambitious, but if you plan on using all the latest technologies, they will cost quite a lot, I'm assuming, despite the fact that a lot of things are getting cheaper and cheaper in terms of hardware. So the question is, who is going to pay for all the infrastructure and how is this going to be sustainable? Because new technologies are coming in uh, every day. Well, first of all, the outset, there's going to be a capital investment, of course, it has to be. You can't do it without a certain amount of capital investment for a new hospital. Then the model that we're looking at in terms of business model is looking at um, how much we charge people for access to healthcare as it's a private hospital, um, and then figuring out how do we put all the new technologies into that space so that it becomes affordable and still becomes viable in terms of a commercial direction. So we're doing a lot of modeling around what tech might need to be introduced. And so it may be that we don't introduce everything together. It may be we do it in stages, seeing which works best for us at the moment, which technology needs to be in today, which needs to be in, in next year, the year after, uh, and figuring out what that might look like as we see the benefits. But ultimately, we have to try this. We, there's no, um, we can't just carry on as we are, for example. And, and I guess what we're going to be learning from is um, what's the affordability like for technology interface. Remember, a lot of people spend capital outlay all the time in putting in technologies that are just too expensive. I'll give you an example of, of the EHR, both CERN and EPIC, for example. They cost hundreds of millions of dollars per hospital per year, okay, um, onto an EHR system that's not fit for practice, that's not fit for purpose, that, ha that doesn't allow APIs to be built on it, that has lacks interoperability. So, but yet we spend hundreds of millions of pounds on this around the world, okay? Let's make an EHR, for example, that's free, open platform, accessible, so that it becomes affordable. You can do certain things with technology that will make it more affordable, I think, and make that whole pathway much better. Since you mentioned platforms and data, do you already have an IT provider that's going to take care of the EHR system? Um, because, uh, you know, famous or known systems such as Epic and Cerner are uh, known and are widely used, especially in the US. And despite the fact that we can read in online media how they're opening up on the outside to developers, they are very vendor locked in and a lot of physicians are dissatisfied with them, also because they're expensive. Did you already choose the provider uh, with open standards for your project? No, we're looking at a number, seeing who can offer the best um, example for us and which one we can use so that we can build on it fairly quickly. Okay. So we, we also want those partners to be on that journey with us. So mm -hmm. of these people is to experiment with us, implement change, and to have data at the end of it to showcase what we can do together. So we're looking at a number, which I can't tell you about, a number yeah. of players that I think will be very beneficial. But, you know, this and, – and you've got to get away – from using these technologies like I've explained earlier, like CERN and EPIC, which just hold the population at ransom. And I think that's the wrong way about doing things. And we can do so much better uh, and it'd be much more affordable. If this project succeeds, it could be a role model for other countries in terms of showing 
how new technologies can improve healthcare. It reminds me on Cuba that became a role model in what primary care can bring uh, to improve public uh, healthcare and how it can lower uh, healthcare costs because you don't need expensive secondary and tertiary care. Yeah, and you're right. There's no reason, to, you know, you, we always look to America or the kind of Western states to showcase what the perfect healthcare system is like. And they're not perfect. <laughs> we, we, we've, we've got it wrong, haven't we? <laughs> In many regards, it's too expensive. You can't afford it. Um, so actually, these countries where you have perhaps slightly less regulation, that you can you can really innovate in a way that you can't elsewhere, may be able to showcase certain ideas, certain pathways that might benefit everybody. And our idea, of course, is to take that whole platform and and show that so that it becomes a template for other people to to learn from. And we want to share experiences. We don't want to be alone in this. We want to be sharing experiences as we go along so that other people can learn from what we're doing and expand so that uh, the world's population can benefit from what we're trying to achieve in South America. This was the 18th episode of Faces of Digital Health podcast. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and you'll be notified about the next episode automatically. Of course, I'll be happy if you share the news, leave a comment or review either on Twitter where you can find me under at Z-A-J-C-T-J-A-S-A and you can also leave a comment or rating in iTunes. Stay tuned. Thank you.